Welcome to the Mac PFD Spark Podcast. This podcast is meant to inspire you to take the next step in your development journey as a faculty member. We're really excited to bring you excellent and interesting content, from inspiring you to teach or supervise more effectively, to leading and managing your own team, to thinking about creative or humanistic ways to do your work, and finally, to build up your skills in scholarly practice. We welcome you to sit back, listen, and enjoy the latest episode of the Mac PFD Spark podcast. In this episode, we hear from Shanda Hunter Trottier talk about speech language pathology. She discusses topics such as her role as a speech language pathologist, the SpeechWorks organization, and how she navigated and adapted during COVID. We hope you enjoy. Welcome everyone. I'm really looking forward to our conversation today. I have Shanda Hunter Trottier with us and I'm really looking forward to talking with Shanda more and introducing Shanda to our faculty development community. I met Shanda because she had won an award here in the Faculty of Health Sciences for exceptional part-time instructors. And I'll tell you a little bit more about this award in our conversation today. But before we go there, I'd like to welcome you, Shanda, to the podcast and tell us a little bit about yourself and your role in the health professions. Thank you, Ruth. It's a real pleasure to be here. I was very honored to be invited to participate in this with you. So thank you. Uh, I live in Burlington. Uh, with my husband and my two amazing kids, where I've been a practicing speech-language pathologist for 34 years now. I started my career in the hospital setting in the acute medical and rehab sector before launching into private practice work. Now, I do have a few different roles as a speech-language pathologist, and I'd say that my primary role is as a clinician, so providing assessment, consultation, and treatment, And after all of these years, I continue to be driven by the hands-on clinical work, as I think the clients and patients and families that I've teamed with over the past few decades have really motivated me to continue loving that clinical role. All those clients and families who allowed me into their lives when they are most vulnerable so that we can navigate that communication and swallowing rehab journey together. So that's, I think, the primary piece that really Uh, speaks to my heart. Um, But I've been very fortunate to explore some other roles and perspectives of our profession as well, with my participation on boards and committees with our regulatory body and professional associations. And this helps me to really keep current on industry trends, best practices, and it serves as a way for me to advocate for the people of Ontario with communication and swallowing barriers. Thank you. My, my involvement at the college and association levels, um, I'd encourage other professionals to become involved, has really fostered my ability and perspective around more of the global issues that we as professionals in healthcare face in Ontario. And, you know, the essentiality of a professional association to be strategic in the alignment with various stakeholders and proactive in government initiatives. A newer role for me, Ruth, as you know, is uh, my involvement, uh, which started in 2017, was when I was first invited to participate in the first and only problem-based learning speech language pathology program in North America, and now one of three in the world. And Dr. Lynn Turkstra and Justine Hamilton were the creators of this very comprehensive and robust uh, program, and I was certainly honored to be 
brought into that fold. So that's probably my most recent role as an SLP. Um, and as we know, McMaster University has long been known for the richness of their medical professionals. And now the Callow caliber of the speech language pathology clinicians heading into our profession is really making a mark in our communities. It's a, I think it's been a long time coming for McMaster to include SLP services in the rehab program. Yes. And this is one factor that I was so excited to talk with you more about because when I found out that you were a speech and language, speech language pathologist, and that you had won this award, I thought, oh my goodness, I really need to reach out to you and see if you would be able to come to join us on this podcast and to share with the listeners the work that you do. And you've described your role as a speech language pathologist as addressing communication and swallowing concerns from individuals. So could you tell us a little bit more about your role as a speech language pathologist? And also what you, um, I understand that you have founded and you are the owner of SpeechWorks. So tell, tell us about that. Oh, for sure, for sure. Just to, kind of in general from a clinical speech language pathology role, we, we work with individuals across the age span. So I would say our youngest client right now at the clinic is five months of age, uh, some early feeding and swallowing issues right up through 95 years of age. So, you know, anybody, we work with individuals um, on area, any area of communication or swallowing difficulty that is preventing them from engaging with others, the world around them, from learning. I mean, language and communications is really the basis of how we connect with the world. Uh, in, and I could certainly, I could talk for hours about what we actually do clinically. And it's really, it's funny, it's a hard answer. It's a hard question to answer in a nutshell, because our scope of practice is, is really quite broad when you think yes. of, of, you know, the age span and all the areas of communication. Exactly. Um, but to, just to jump uh, briefly to your question about why I created SpeechWorks, which was orig originally S.L. Hunter and Associates. In 1995, I ventured into private practice so that I could really focus on a method of service delivery that was accessible, timely, and individualized. Uh, I didn't head into this with a business plan, rather just a desire to focus solely on partnering with clients and their families, and I'll call them clients, which is interchangeable with patients, um, to develop treatment plans that were really specific to their concerns, their needs, their unique circumstances, and, you know, what, what was really precluding them from that whole activity and participation level in the ICF model. So over the past 28 years, our team has grown, and I've really been truly blessed to be working alongside such an incredible group of compassionate and dedicated colleagues. I can say we honestly thrive on the successes of the children and adults that we have the privilege of working with. And um, we have a team of 26 individuals. Everybody has kind of an area of focus, whether it's pediatric, school age, youth, adolescent, uh, adult. And a number of our team members have been with us here together for 10, 15, 20 years. So we really um, pull together in a collaborative approach. Over the years, we've been able to develop some new initiatives and collaborations to increase access to service in a variety of ways. And I can give you a couple of examples of that. 
um, something that we have the flexibility in the private sector to do. And one is that we've partnered with the Sioux Lookout First Nation Health Authority uh, up in Sioux Lookout to provide speech and language services to individuals in the 33 Indigenous communities of Northern Ontario. So prior to COVID, a couple of years prior to COVID, we started this initiative where we would head up for a full week every month uh, to work uh, with the, the children and adults in the communities. And the great thing about partnering with McMaster too, or being involved in the McMaster program is I've been able to facilitate taking up students for clinical placements, which has been a really rich opportunity for them and for the communities uh, as well. Uh, so we did do, uh, virtual services during COVID. We always have tried to do telehealth with uh, our clients up in the north between our in-person visits, but I was happy to, uh, I'm happy to say that last August we started our monthly visits again. So for a full week every month we go and our team members stay now in the Indigenous communities, um, which is a little more difficult in the winter for sure. <laughs> we have to send our tougher clinicians up during those months. And so that's one of the things, you know, that we've been able to do in terms of collaborations and, and whatnot. Another one is in March of 2020, uh, we are very excited to partner with our wonderful SLP colleague, Jennifer Horton at Lear Communication and the radiology team with Wentworth Halton X-Ray to create a private option for access to video fluoroscopic swallow assessments. Um, so private care allows individuals in the community to skip the often lengthy wait list for the hospital-based assessments and receive immediate assessment and treatment for their swallowing concerns. That one had been on my wish list for probably about 14 years to, to be able to find that sort of partnership because there are clients that are in our region or waiting anywhere from four to 10 months to get an outpatient video fluoroscopy done. So that's... Uh, uh, another one that um, we've been very excited about. Another couple uh, examples, we've created a fetal alcohol syndrome, uh, fetal alcohol, ah, see, that's one that you'll be able to snip. <laughs> An FASD, fetal alcohol syndrome um, diagnostic team. So we've collaborated with a neuropsychology firm, Dr. Story Bellaconian Associates in Burlington and an occupational therapist, Leslie Burkett, to provide FASD assessments. Again, the wait for these assessments through other means can take several years. Uh, so again, just kind of circling back to increasing accessibility for services. And I, I would say maybe one other one that jumps to the top of my mind, Ruth, is video stroposcopy, and that's video imaging of the vocal cords uh, in our voice lab here. Um, there often has been a lengthy wait, again, for outpatient video stroboscopy uh, assessments. Great news is there is a new ENT uh, now in Hamilton, which is assisting with that in the inpatient uh, side of things, so shortening lengthy waits, but that's another example of how we've been able to uh, reduce weight for people who would like to pursue alternative avenues. I Think, when I think of um, the practice as well, Ruth, I, I often say it almost sounds like Martin Luther King when I say, I have a dream. And, and yes. uh, every time it reminds me of that, I think of uh, Martin Luther King. But I, I have this dream of this world where all those with communication or swallowing barriers, A, understand that the SLP is a regulated healthcare professional that's trained to reduce those barriers. Yes. And B, has access to these communication and swallowing professionals. So that's kind of what the vision of the clinic has always been. Yes. And that that's 
exactly what I'm feeling internally as you're describing the many areas of practice, as well as the different networks and collaborations that you've developed, as well as the different uh, areas of imaging that you're conducting. And this is all new to me. And yet what's coming through very clearly from this description is how you're, you're so holistically minded in the approach to the work you do as a speech language pathologist. And I want to ask you more about that teaching component that you mentioned with bringing students up into Northern communities and Indigenous communities. But before I do that, I wanted to ask a quick question about how you navigated during COVID times. Because as I'm envisioning these various interactions that you have with clients across the entire lifespan and age span, how did you navigate and how did you adapt during COVID times when there were physical limitations to you being able to engage with someone's mouth, swallowing, oropharynx, et cetera? That's a, that's a really good question. And I think on, what was it, March 16th, 2020, when I was actually just driving back from doing an assessment in London, Ontario, and I heard on the radio that doors were shutting. And I thought, and they were saying they're extending the March break by two weeks. I thought, oh my goodness, we're shutting the door for two weeks. <laughs> the only time that we were stopped from doing any face-to-face uh, -face service uh, was during that first three months. We were phased back in with um, the first, first phase of essential service. But you're absolutely right that that whole, and for me, I'm from a different era. I'm not from technology era. So we have some younger clinicians on our team who were able to embrace that a, a lot quicker. But we were able to transition during that first three months, um, probably about 70% of our caseload onto some form of virtual care. There, of course, are children that can't, we can't treat through the screen, but we can provide support and programming to the parents to do some parent training and, and guide them through, through virtual care. Um, there are a lot of different clinical profiles that we do work with that actually lend themselves quite well. And in fact, um, there was a landmark study conducted at the Mayo Clinic over 20 years ago, and, and it was complemented by another study 10 years ago through um, Kent State University, where they they were finding that online speech therapy can be as effective as traditional in-person in a number of ways in helping individuals reach their communication goals. But for those ones that we need to be hands-on and, and manually manipulating things, it, it really, really is really, really challenging. Um, so we got back to, with full PPE, of course, to in-person as quickly as we could. But we found that some of our clients are finding the convenience of virtual. I mean, that was one of the silver linings when we think of the meetings we hold and the things that we can actually achieve over uh, virtual care. We do have some families where traveling into the clinic was a problem, or, you know, they have five children, they're trying to balance all the extracurriculars, and oh my goodness, how do we fit in this? Well, this is another avenue. Snow days are no longer as complicated, right? We can, we can do care virtually. So it was a challenge, and I think you know, aside from the, the actual client care was supporting our team. 
you know, yes. for people working at home and trying to keep Definitely. everyone connected. So we really increased our clinical meetings, you know, rather than every couple of weeks or every month, we were meeting at least once a week as a clinical team and um, supporting each other and helping each other be creative for, for virtual, virtual care. Teaching virtually was very interesting. Transitioning uh, the curriculum to the virtual model, again, when you're not as accustomed to doing things on, online, I found three-hour lectures or classes virtually was a, just a whole lot different. Luckily, I find that our program is incredibly engaged. So most of the, you know, it's a small program, 32 to 34 students. Most people had their cameras on and you could still feel engaged. But some of the things we had to, you know, you know, doing an oral MEC exam during the one um, major shutdown year, we were, I was teaching oral MEC with like a camcorder on my head and I had my son beside me and I'm trying to figure out how they could see his mouth and oral Oh my goodness. <laughs> but we did it, you know, we, we made it, we made it work. And, uh, and it was again, you know, the whole idea of standardized testing when we do language and cognitive testing, the, the whole idea is those tests were standardized in face-to-face -face care. So how can we still maintain the integrity of our assessments um, through virtual care? So it took uh, some creativity for sure and some patience from the students as well, but I think we got through it very well. And I think it allowed students to see a side of uh, care that they're going to be exposed to in almost every sector they work in now, right? Because mm. they're now, our students are now used to doing some assessment and treatment virtually and uh, they'll be ready for that. Wow, great point. Yes, because you're describing the transitions that you made in your client interactions and moving some of those interactions, assessments, treatments to the virtual platform. And also, you had to navigate the teaching environment and the transition in the education environment to virtual teaching. So it's teaching virtually and then engaging with clients virtually as well. It was like a complex maneuver in terms of that whole education process and bringing the speech language pathologist students along in their learning journey. Exactly. And yeah, that's incredible for me to just imagine as you're describing it. And I think in, in the clinical skills lab that, that I'm actively involved with, a part of what we're really trying to teach and help um, the students integrate is how you connect with your with your patients and your clients. And, and of course, that's easier to read the room. It's easier to read the energy of the person when you are face-to-face. -face. Um, so I think it's... Um, so. The benefits, yeah, but there also will be challenges. I think of some of them when they went into their first clinical placement and it was face-to-face -face after doing virtual, a little more unnerving for sure. Yes. But again, I think they were um, real troopers <laughs> for lack of a better term. They, you know, they had some resilience and, and they were in it together. And we were, I think it was uh, in the end, it's going to give them a, a new perspective that they wouldn't have otherwise had. Um make them more well-rounded clinicians in general. Mm -hmm. And I, I hear you in terms of the strength, the resilience, and the willingness to adapt to change that we see in our learners. Mm -hmm. However, I also see that this strength and resilience can be fostered by good educators. 
And this is where I come to the highlight of what our conversation, well, in my mind, the highlight of our conversation today, because as I started our episode off with, I met you because you had received the 2023 Sibley Award. And for listeners that aren't familiar with the Sibley Award, this is a prestigious award that's given in the Faculty of Health Sciences to part-time faculty. And part-time faculty are such an important and integral part of our Faculty of Health Sciences. And it's really great that we can honor you and our part-time faculty in this way with this award that's devoted only two and only part-time faculty are eligible to receive. So during that award ceremony, there was a, well, there was an introduction provided by our vice dean of education. And then Shanda, you also had a chance to speak. And I, I would just love to hear uh, a bit from what you shared that day, as well as a bit more of what most excites you, or I shouldn't even say what most most excites you. I should just maybe ask you, what are the aspects of your teaching, your collaboration, your educational role here in the School of Rehabilitation Sciences that energizes you, that invigorates you, or that inspires you to continue on with the amazing work that you do? Oh, well, that's delightful. First of all, I was, as I said that evening, really surprised and honored that I had been nominated for the Sibley Award uh, when my nominator had reached out about an updated CV. As I mentioned that evening, I thought, oh, yes. boy, it's another committee. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, so it was really heartwarming that uh, Dr. Turkstra and Justine Hamilton and then supported by a student um, letter. It was it was very, very heartwarming for me to receive that. So I'm incredibly honored. I think the aspects of the work I enjoy most with the connection to rehab science, that's a, that's a difficult question because there's several, just like there's so many yes. practices that I love. But I think the opportunity to teach the clinical skills lab in particular, has been kind of a lovely marriage between my passion for clinical assessment and treatment and the joy of sharing that passion with up-and-coming clinicians. Uh, being a part of the School of Rehab Science affords that opportunity to really impart on our graduate students the essentiality of interprofessional efforts in patient care. And it's interesting, I found that so many of the students going through this particular program they are deep thinkers, and they bring this infusion of fresh perspectives into my teachings and practice. So we all learn from one another, and uh, the classes kind of take on a life of their own, given that it is problem-based learning and discussion-based. So being in the classroom with 34 graduate students with a craving to learn about this field of study that I love does energize me. And I've always felt inspired to learn more from our patients and clients, but my connection to the school now of rehab sciences moves me to also continue my learnings for our students. So that, that's kind of one area. I think the other thing I love so much about CSL or clinical skills lab teachings is we have the opportunity to engage not only in what we do as clinicians, but we're also able to address the importance of how we become skilled clinicians, how we integrate the knowledge with the clinical reasoning and the magic that comes from connecting with patients in a way that really fosters trust and engagement and progress in our clinical sessions. 
And I found that this unique problem-based program that we have the opportunity to apply the skills that are paramount in differentiating between what is considered a good technician from a very perceptive clinician. I think that's key. And the other thing that I found very unique about the McMaster program is we kind of follow what's happening in the other um, medical and rehab uh, programs, the OSCEs. So those objective standardized clinical exams, um, they kind of springboard our students into their clinical placements with a bit of a flavor of engaging in face-to-face -face assessment before they're with a, a real live uh, client with their, you know, the client's stresses and concerns and emotions. They're able to kind of work through their own emotions of nervousness and angst first before having that other opportunity in their clinical placements. They seem to go in with a little bit more confidence um, and they've already been able to evaluate in some of those areas that we think are critical to performance of healthcare professionals, right? Such as communication skills and the ability to handle unpredictable patient behavior. We have it standardized so our mock patients you know, might be giving a little bit of a behavioral issue going through, like, why, why is it I have to open my mouth for you and see, you yes. know, what, is a, what does the student clinician do then, right? Yes. So I really so. love what you said earlier, and I'm sorry to interrupt. I want you to continue, uh, but I really wanted to highlight something that you said earlier that jumps out at me, and that is that you're wanting to develop insightful clinicians rather than being just or producing technicians. And I really like that and uh, that image that it conjures in my mind because as an educator, there's something just really invigorating about knowing that you're building a whole person as a professional to become an insightful clinician, a wise practitioner beyond simply being technically proficient in the skills of required of that profession. So I love that, but please continue on. Well, now that, that's true, Ruth, because I think we often talk about that in class that you know anybody can read a list of questions and get the answers from their client. But if you aren't able to really be present and in the moment and, and learn how to be present and in the moment um, to gain that trust from your client, we're not working in a profession that is just, that doesn't communication is such an intimate thing right and you need to be able to engage and communicate with your client and you need that trust so that they open up and share their their concerns uh, so I, I we do put a lot of weight on that in our classes and um, we're getting some really good feedback from the community clinical instructors and supervisors around that piece uh, they're very impressed with our students that go out even after their first year or their their second unit that it's hard to believe that they've just done one or two units in the program so far. So I think getting, weaving that, that clinical insight and reasoning in from right from the, the ground makes a big difference. And, you know, it just occurred to me that this is also applicable to the field of speech language pathology, that the field is not simply practitioners who are are managing the technical aspects of communication, but they are also facilitating at an existential level, perhaps. I mean, I might even extrapolate there, but at a level of human interaction, facilitating communication. Is that a fair assessment or recap of how you've described your, uh, just even your interactions with students? 
Absolutely. You bang on. I mean, because it's oh, not, yeah. not transactional. It's, right. it's so complex. It's the integration of thinking and reasoning and speaking and listening and processing. And so it's not just the traditional, you know, I think so often when people think of speech language pathology, they think of oh, somebody's having difficulties with their L's or their R's, uh, or they have a stuttering issue. I mean, some of the other areas have become a little bit more familiarized now in terms of aphasia and some of the the adult uh, profiles, but they don't think of some of the more subtle issues mm-hmm. of being able to use your communication skills in a pragmatic or social way, being able to interpret the intended meaning of your communication partner. Um, so there's just so much when you think communication is very complex. Yes, exactly. Skill. And if there's something that's not kind of working right, it can derail things in a way that impacts social integration, learning, being able to manage in a workplace. Uh, so when you think of, when you talk about, you know, those, those soft skills too, right, you can have somebody who's a really good technician in a workplace too, but maybe what they're struggling with is being able to connect with their coworkers. They can't do yeah. the water cooler chat. So that may be another reason they come to us, right? right. So not necessarily a classical speech language disorder, but something that's just not quite right in terms of the way they're trying to connect with others. Right. And connecting to the social element of communication beyond simply the technical component. I shouldn't say simply because that technical component is very important. It's a and adding on component that um, I'm, I'm also hearing from you. Yeah. I really it, appreciate one's, that. One's concrete, right? One's a little yeah. more concrete and measurable. Like right. You can measure some of it, but we as speech language pathologists have really struggled to how do you document and, and encapsulate progress? Yes. How do you say their, their communication engagement is, is 10% better than it was three months ago? How do you measure, how do you measure how somebody is communicating their emotions, their feelings, and um, what is a successful interaction? Right. I think some of the areas are a little more easy. We talk about how you can measure progress in weight bearing because you can say, well, you weight bear this much on week one. Where are you at? 10 pounds (laughs) versus 20 pounds. Yes. (laughs) Exactly. So I think we as clinicians have always struggled with how do we capture that even in our clinical documentation? Yes. How do we measure? How do we fit into the FIM scoring in in some of the hospitals, like the, the functional independence measure? How do you fit into some of those boxes? when you're talking about communication, it's been a, it's always been a challenge. Oh, very interesting. And this connects to my last question for you, Shanda, and that is where have you seen your field of speech language pathology evolve and where do you see it moving in the future? Where, what are some of those directions that you see coming on the horizon? Okay, that's another good, you've got good questions, Ruth. <laughs> well, I love this. I mean, I'm so, I'm so curious to hear your thoughts because it's just like you're giving me so much inspiration. Thank you. Well, the field of, I'll just say SLP for short, it's relatively new when you think of it in the context of rehab medicine. So it's relatively new and it's relatively small. 
uh, speech pathology just started getting recognition in the 1920s, which is, you know, not too long ago, uh, when the American Academy of Speech Correction, it was called, was formed mm -hmm. in, you know, way back in 1926. So it began to develop over the next 20 years, and it was kind of at the time of World War II that was going on, and soldiers were returning home with brain injuries. And there was becoming a concern. So it was speech pathology researchers who started to work with them through therapy. And of course, I wasn't practicing back then, but uh, my late grandmother was actually a pioneer in the field back in oh, wow. late 40s, early 50s into the 70s. And she was a, a brilliant, very driven woman who was committed to educating not only the public, but also the medical field on the potential for rehab services in those patients, mostly with um, well, there was the, the war vets, but also polio was big at that time. I remember going in as a child and into the rehab center with her, and she was working with the children with cerebral palsy. So I think polio, cerebral palsy, and stroke were the ones that she was focused on. When I started practicing in the late 80s, it was a really special opportunity to sit down with Granny and share clinical perspectives. Uh, clinical reasoning, evolution of evidence-based evidence practice. And it was interesting because the core elements of what drives our profession seems consistent and has remained. That, rec that recognition of the tremendous impact across all aspects of an individual's life and the incredible isolation that can occur with impaired communication or swallowing. I mean, that always reminds me of a quote by Daniel Webster, which is really um, familiar to all speech pathologists, is if all my possessions were taken from me with one exception, I would choose to keep the power of communication, for with it, I would soon regain all the rest. So, wow. you know, and, and my grandmother and I, you know, we would kind of talk about these things. So, so those things have remained, but then she would show me all, she had boxes of materials that she had to create by hand. Um, so the actual application of therapy and devices and tools, you know, has really evolved. But I think what kind of, one of the main, I have a, a few main things that I've seen change. Yes. One is our regulatory body. The College of Audiologists and Speech Language Pathologists of Ontario was founded not till 1994, so that's pretty recent. Before that, um, those of us in the province were registered with our professional association. So we know that the college, like any other college regulatory body, serves and protects the public interest, governs the registrants in accordance with the provincial legislation and, and regulations. So, and so we've had the college come into play. We've seen the membership of the college more than double in the last 25 years. Uh, which means increased access to quality care. But even with doubling, we still only have in Ontario uh, 4,250 speech language pathologists in Ontario. So that's still a small number when you consider the volume of children and adults requiring services. So there's still a real, a real shortage of, of providers. Yes. And so hopefully with the 30 some students that you encounter in the SLP program here, let's add to that 4,000 in number here in Ontario, 1% every year. 1% every year, <laughs> but true. And I think, you know, it's interesting because uh, at the college, we were talking about the membership numbers having really dropped in the last couple of years. And we've seen like, I think a lot of sectors with COVID hitting people, you know, just decided maybe not to return 
to work mm -hmm. afterwards. And there's been people are retiring earlier. Uh, a lot of the baby boomers are now at that retirement age. So we're needing kind of an influx of, of the new, new blood. Another thing that I've really seen change, Ruth, is the evolution of private practice. So when I entered clinical practice, speech pathologists in our area were predominantly employed in hospitals, school boards, and treatment centers. And there's been a real significant increase in those working in private practice, I would say mostly over the last 10 to 12 years. And with that, I've seen a few changes. Um, mm. Access to care for those on wait lists who wouldn't, maybe who wouldn't otherwise qualify for the publicly funded services. I mean, the, the wait lists are so long and in schools, they have to take the high, high priority. So a lot of children who are really requiring the services aren't considered number one priority. So they never actually get to the top of that list. Um, there's an incredibly long list for preschool programs to the point where some children actually age out by the time they get to the top of the list. Oh, wow. So we, you know, we're able to kind of try to you know, see some of these children while they're waiting, or maybe they don't need it by the time, you know, their, their name comes up to the top of the list. And so I've seen these new options for services grow. And uh, I think that also applies to our, again, clients slash patients who are inpatients at a hospital where our inpatient colleagues are bursting with their caseload sizes. So some families are now starting to look for private services to supplement or augment what they can get in the hospital. So maybe, for example, we have uh, patients who they're being seen for their swallowing because that's a primary concern, but no one's able to get to them at this point for their communication impairments after a head injury mm. or a stroke. So the family will have us come in and um, um, work in collaboration, collaborative efforts. It's something that was done for years with nursing Mm -hmm. um, people who don't, you know, supplement their nursing round the clock care. So now that's something that I've seen evolve. I think there's also a couple of newer practice areas that I've seen transition in over the last while. One that not a lot of people have heard about yet is a communication intermediary role. And what I love is some of these newer areas of practice we can incorporate into our um, program at, at McMaster to increase the exposure of these Communication intermediary, communication intermediary, let's just say CI for short, is a speech pathologist with additional CI training that assists victims, witnesses, or accused people who have communication disabilities to understand questions and communicate their answers effectively when they're engaging with police, the legal, or justice professionals. So wow. kind of work in a similar way to a, a sign language interpreter or a language oh. translators, but we yes. use very techniques. We aren't there to advocate for the, the client. We aren't there to um, communicate for them or provide any testimony in those situations. We're really there to inform on the person's communication abilities, their needs, advise on what can be done when communicating yes. with the person, and provide direct communication assistance at each stage of that criminal process so that they have a voice in that in those situations. Wow, I really appreciate you sharing this because this is so promising when I hear you describe the role of a CI and mm -hmm. how they can facilitate and how they can support individuals who are already navigating these very complex legal processes and, and with all the additional stress that that entails. 
how valuable it is to have an SLP support their ability to communicate to their best in this environment. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, we all have some, some individuals, again, whether the victim, the witness, or the accused who, you know, they, they can't answer the question accurately because they don't understand the question that's being asked. Exactly. We may use visual supports. We might use diagrams. We might, you know, so whatever we can do um, and we, we assess them ahead of time to know what is their vocabulary level? What do they need to be asked questions that are very brief or always with visual support? So those yes. kinds of, to make sure that the, you know, that it's an accurate outcome. Yes. Too. Mm-hmm. I, I think that's definitely a, a newer role that we've, that we've seen transition in. Um a newer area of practice. Mm-hmm. Incredible. And uh, I probably, like I said, there's some other ones that are less known, like for example, vocal cord dysfunction. We It's known now a little bit more that we treat voice disorders. Mm. We assess and treat voice disorders, but we also deal with people who have vocal cord dysfunction. So they may not have a voice disorder, but it may be that their vocal cords are closing when they should be opening. And mm. And so it, you know, could be misdiagnosed as asthma, but it's really just, it's really a vocal cord issue, not a a pulmonary or respiratory issue. So we work in that area, you know, accent adaptation, uh, gender affirming work has become more prominent in the last, I'd say six to seven years where we work with people who are transitioning um, from one gender to the other to ensure that their communication style is allowing them to have them be perceived how they want to want to be perceived in the in the community those are some of those I think private practice has allowed us to really look also at some areas that people pursue for either enhancement or self-discovery or self um, self-development skills as opposed to disorder-based right yes whereas you know you don't you can't pursue those as often within the healthcare sector because we need to work on those things that are are more disorder based so it's uh, allowed that as well when you talk about when you ask about the evolution things i've seen change i think some of the other things um ruth are like social media of course mm-hmm. <laughs> i i tend to this the whole segment of technological advancement is the is a part of our clinical practice. It's still a bit of a marvel to me because I'm from the pre-tech era. Um, so 33 years ago, alternative or augmentative communication devices might have consisted of like a um, a Bristol board with symbols on it or <laughs> low tech or no tech. And I mean, the infusion of technology uh, is just there's no boundaries. Mm. There's no boundaries when you think yeah. of someone like Stephen Hawking's and mm. the way that you could, you know, we're looking at technology that you can access through eye gaze and head tilt and to be able to provide a person with no verbal communication with an ability to, to express themselves. Yes. It's pretty astonishing. I love that quote that you shared from Daniel Webster. And it really resonates because what I am seeing is there is a uh, just such great promise in this field and the the individuals that are impacted with the by the work of speech language pathologists is promoting their ability to navigate the world to communicate in the world and to express a fuller wholer authentic version of themselves and 
that's what I'm hearing from what you're describing in terms of the future directions in the field of SLP. So I really appreciate you sharing that. It's very exciting to me. Well, I love that that's what's coming across and that's that's how it's, uh, that that's what you're hearing because it's, you know, it is, a, I say 34 years in, I, I never tire of the work that we can do. And, you know, each, you can have two clients come in with the same, you know, medical file or profile or imaging and, you know, what they bring to the table based on their experience, their thoughts, feelings, emotion, the complexity of who they are as a human every single client you see is going to be different. And you're in the business of promoting human flourishing by supporting communication. I mean, that's what, that's what I'm hearing. Like, does that, does that uh, connect at all? That resonates with me for sure. I think I can have you redo our tagline. (laughs) You're in the business of human flourishing by supporting communication. And I that is it. like that's what I'm that's what I'm getting from our conversation. And so thank you so much. This is Shanda Hunter Trottier here with me today. And I've so enjoyed our conversation. Thank you for sharing with me about your amazing field, about the work that you do in SLP, as well as the interactions that you've had with students as well as clients. And thank you also for sharing about the future that you see for SLP and the tremendous impact that that will have on all of our communities. Thank you for being here today. Thank you, Rose. It's been an absolute pleasure. And if I can use that new tagline, I think I, I may do so. <laughs> yes, please do. Yeah, it came from it came from you and your descriptions. So it really originated with you. <laughs> Wonderful. Wonderful. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in to the Mac PFD Spark podcast. This podcast is brought to you by the Office for Continuing Professional Development and the Program for Faculty Development at McMaster University's Faculty of Health Sciences. For more information on faculty development, be sure to check out our website at macpfd.ca. That's M-A-C-P-F-D.ca. Here you can find other episodes as well as resources for your personal and professional development. A quick shout out to our sound engineer, Ishan Mania Panda, who has been an amazing asset to our team. Another shout out to Scott Holmes, who composed and supplied us with the music you've been listening to. That brings us to the end of this episode. We hope you've enjoyed it, and be sure to tune in for our future episodes.